I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. This week's podcast is a great encounter with a UK MGA pioneer at the top of his game. Colin Thompson is the CEO of Nexus Underwriting, a firm he founded in London 13 years ago. That business is projecting punchy organic growth of a third this year to 600 million US dollars in premiums written. It's also on the hunt for ever larger acquisitions and is looking to back some of its own underwriting with a risk-bearing entity to show its paper providers that it has real skin in the game. During our chat, Colin also confirms that Nexus will be selling its trade credit broking arm to focus exclusively on underwriting. We cover a huge amount of ground here and a lot is revealed about the next strategic direction for what is almost certainly London's fastest growing MGA business of scale. We also learn a lot about what makes the entrepreneur driving its growth tick. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Rick J. Lindsay, Chairman and CEO of Claims Direct Access, otherwise known as CDA. We all read about the claims nightmares in the United States of America, social inflation, nuclear verdicts, and the sky is falling. Hardly a day goes by without the news of reserve strengthening at major carriers. However, it's not all bad news. In the United States of America, we have the best legal system in the world, which allows you to fight frivolous claims and litigation and come out on top. In this kind of environment, you must get smarter about how you handle your claims and who your partners are. You have to move fast and be robust. CDA has been handling claims for over 40 years nationwide and has a team of 46 claims professionals, including 12 highly skilled attorneys and litigators. We have handled cases for major Lloyd syndicates since 1994, as well as U.S.-based major carriers, and have closed over 70,000 claims since 1994 nationwide. Not settling frivolous litigations is a must. CDA claim service means going the extra mile, handling claims quickly and vigorously with a proactive approach. Why not get in contact now to see how CDA can do the same amazing work for you and your partners that they do for me every day? Visit www.claimsdirectaccess.com today. Colin, thanks so much for giving some time to speak to The Voice of Insurance. It's really great to speak to you again. It's been a long time. Nexus, there's always so much going on, always growing, it seems. So, Give us a bit of an update of where Nexus is and what sort of growth you're currently projecting for 2021 and beyond. Good morning, Mark. Thank you. Yep, this year will be a very good year for the Nexus. We have a very strong growth plan for this year. So in 2020, we finished the year underwriting $450 million. And our plan for 2021 is to grow that to 600 million US. That will be excluding any additional M&A, which will sit on top of that 600 million. And we will achieve that largely through recovering some of the lost ground in some of the areas which were impacted by COVID in 2020, such as aviation and travel. Clearly, they had an impact last year and good, strong organic growth in most of the other product lines where they're experiencing the benefits of the hardening market. So our plan excluding M&A this year is to get to 600 million US, which we're very confident around achieving. There's lots of other stuff going on as well. So Nexus will be in the news over the next couple of months. We do have a transaction in play, which there has been some publicity around, and that is the divestment of Xenia, which is the uh, the broking operation that sits within Nexus. And that is a specialist trade credit broker, which we are looking to divest over the next few months. That process is underway. 
and we hope to conclude that within the next two to three months. So there'll be more news on that in due course. So another busy year for us, I think. That does sound very busy. So you're going to grow the business a third. So she's saying part of that is the economy coming back, economic activity returning in sectors that were hit by COVID. How much is that as rate? About 20% is rate. We are experiencing very strong rate across nearly all of the classes, as you would expect. Some of the lines of business we're underwriting are seeing 50% plus rate increases on a blend across the entire book. It's somewhere in a region of 20% rate. You singled out aviation and travel as ones that are just coming back. What about some of the core lines that I'd always associate you with lines like financial lines, for example? Are those really, really motoring in terms of rate? Yeah, it's fair to say there was a fairly substantial shift pre-COVID. So Decile 10 had quite a substantial impact on most casualty lines of business. And of course, financial lines is, is one of those. It's really been a compounded effect over the last two or three years. You know, we are still seeing somewhere between 10 and 30%, depending on the underlying product and the underlying profession, we are seeing somewhere between 10 and 30% across financial lines. Last year, we did launch a financial lines offering in the US, which was new to Nexus. So some of the, the growth you see within Nexus is, is attributed to, to that new development within the US. So we'll write nearly 30 million US of financial lines in the US during the course of 2021, which essentially the bulk of that is new business to Nexus. You mentioned about Decile 10, which is the Lloyd's cleanup process of Lloyd's underwriting. I mean, that really is just a part of a wider global shakeout in everybody's underwriting. Everyone's been cleaning through. And that really has precipitated a bit of a shakeout in the MGA world. Would you describe that with hindsight, that period, particularly in between, say, 2015, 2019, when it almost seemed like there was a new MGA forming every day? Do you just see that there was a bit of a bubble or was it just a standard thing that happens in softer markets all over the place? That's a good question. I think there was certainly a trend for new start MGAs over a three-year period. I think that was driven by partly the soft market. I think that was also driven by some of the success of some of the larger MGAs, and I'd include Nexus within that. But you know, there are good blueprints of successful MGAs, CFC, Jewel, and of course, I would put ourselves into that bracket as well. And when we started this business back in 2008, those blueprints weren't really there in the UK. They, they were in the US. But in actual fact, MGAs back in 2008 were a bit of a dirty word at that point in time. So I think MGAs have built credibility. And with credibility comes the inevitable new entrants who want to replicate that success. So I think it was partly due to a softening market, but I think it was also partly due to underwriting teams and entrepreneurial underwriters have seen the MGA model as a very good model to create value and to run your own business and have all of the attributes that, that are associated with that. So I think Decile 10 has, to some extent, had an impact on those new entrants. We have seen a, a flight to quality within the MGA market over the last few years. And just very simple things like trying to get an underwriting agreement concluded. Now the lead-in time on that can be I'd say the norm is somewhere around about six to eight months from the start of a negotiation to the actual consummation of an underwriting agreement. When we started this business 13 years ago, you could get an underwriting agreement done in a month. You could have your broker walking around Lloyd's and picking up lines and essentially concluding an underwriting agreement very, very quickly. Those days are long gone. So the diligence that sits around the delegation of authorities is much, much greater. You know, that has led to barriers to entry. So it is much more difficult now to start an MGA. So for us, that's good. You know, that means the pool of competitors, there's a limiter on that, should I say. 
And it's also led to opportunities for us. So with that flight to quality, that has led to opportunities for Nexus on the M&A side in terms of MGAs that the regulatory burden and the regulatory responsibility and the compliance burden is much, much greater than it ever was. And I can't see it ever reducing again. So that has led to very good opportunities for us to look at monoline MGAs that want to be part of a bigger organisation that can take some of that responsibility off them. Quite ironic, Colin, isn't it, that perhaps one of the main drivers to start an MGA back in the day was when the sort of people who might have previously started their own Lloyd Syndicate or something similar, that the cost of that kind of barrier to entry had gone through the roof and then we went down the MGA route. And now you're saying that actually MGAs have also got their own barriers to entry because of regulatory and compliance burdens, etc. That's exactly right. And that's the reason why I started an MGA, because trying to start a syndicate looks so difficult. And it, you know, clearly it still is difficult, but you know, MGAs are not, are not far behind starting a syndicate in terms of the lead-in time and the sort of regulatory responsibilities and the due diligence responsibilities that come with it, all of which are good. You know, I think they're good developments, I think. I suppose these days you have to be a virtual insurance company. You have to be as good as the insurance company whose paper you're using almost. I think you've got to be as good as the insurance company from a regulatory perspective. I think you've arguably got to be better than the capacity provider from an underwriting results perspective. Otherwise, they'll say, well, we'll just do it ourselves. I think that's quite important. On that point, actually, Colin, syndicates, Lloyd's being too complicated 10 to 15 years ago, have we potentially gone full circle with the syndicate in a box? Is that sort of something that appeals to you in any way? Trying to redress that burden and and have something that's much smaller, I presume you're far too big for that kind of thing. Or could you use it for little experimental things or or you're first dipping your toe into the water of the Lloyd's market? That is something we've looked at quite recently, actually. And we have performed a conceptual study on the syndicate in a box. As I said earlier, we, we will be a $600 million business at the end of this year, maybe bigger once we bake in the, the M&A, which will conclude as well. And really, the syndicate in a box seems to be positioned for somewhere between a $50 million and $100 million new start sort of Lloyd's operation. So we certainly couldn't transform our business into a syndicate in a box, but could we take a sliver of what we do and put that into a syndicate in a box? And that's something we have looked at. I think in terms of where we sit on that subject, that the lead in time from what we understand is about a year. We're not very patient, to be perfectly honest. We are a fairly entrepreneurial business and a year is a very long time in our world. It's, it's a long time in anyone's business, but we don't really want to spend a year planning to try and do something because you never know what's around the corner from an opportunity perspective. So we have looked at it, but the lead in time and the capital requirements, the accounting that's required once you've established that syndicate in a box, all of those things are probably leading to us to conclude that it's not really for us. There might be other routes which are more efficient and more suitable to us, which we might pursue from a capital perspective. So particularly with the market being as buoyant and as hard as it is, it would be a very logical step for us to consider taking some degree of risk and participating alongside our underwriting partners during the course of the next stage of our development. So taking risk is something we're thinking about. That doesn't mean we'll change our model. It will just be, if we conclude it, it will be a segment of what we do will be risk-bearing. But in terms of where we sit at the moment, I can't see that being a syndicate in a box structure. I think that that just feels too clunky for us. And that, that would be a fairly substantial shift in our thinking if we were to consider doing something in Lloyd's. So I think something outside of Lloyd's, maybe something in the captive space, something like that would be more fitting for us, I think. When you say captive, so you mean that to be almost your own captive? Yeah, possibly, Mark. You know, there are some useful structures out there that we can lean into. So, you know, one could be establishing a retrocession reinsurer 
and taking a segment of our capacity on a reinsurance basis. In other words, reinsuring our capacity providers and participating in the risk that way. That is something which we are seriously considering at the moment. And, you know, you can establish those fairly quickly. There are very well-established regulatory environments where you can operate those captives from, whether it be offshore in Guernsey or Jersey or Bermuda. So they're the sort of things we're thinking about. And the lead-in time on those is far less than the year, which seems to be the answer we're getting when we ask about the syndicate in the box. So would that be the sort of thing where you're offering your own reinsurance capacity offshore to your paper providers to show that you've got skin in the game? Yeah. And I think all of that is part of the development of the larger MGAs. So we're a $600 million MGA. CFC is probably slightly bigger than us. Jewel is probably around about a billion dollars. And we're the biggest. But in the US, you will have $2 billion MGAs. There's probably 10 of them. And most of those much larger MGAs do have some degree of risk sitting within their business model. It almost becomes an expectation once you get to a certain size that you should be taking some degree of participation. The MGA market has moved to some extent towards that model by essentially offering less upfront commission and more profit commission. That is arguably sharing in the underwriting performance of your portfolio to a greater extent. But I think there is the next stage of development, which is taking some degree of genuine balance sheet participation and sitting alongside your underwriting partners. That's what we're evolving towards. Is that strategically very different? Is it only because there's a harder market that you'd need to show that commitment yourself? In a softer market, would your paper providers then not like that? Would they like you to recede because they would like to have more of that income themselves? Or would they ever see you as a competitor? Would they then say, well, hang on a minute, why am I supporting Colin? He's going to end up hoovering up all this business himself. That's a good question. I think for some of our product lines, why would we not want to participate? So we're not an MGA that dips in and dips out of markets. We've grown through buying other MGAs that are mature and have fully developed underwriting performance. And that's very different to some other MGA models, which are essentially, let's go and hire some teams, let's put bums on seats and let's let's back a business plan and let's hope it works out. We've not done that. We've gone and bought essentially ready-made businesses that have that maturity around the back years that have fully developed underwriting performance. So the degree of speculation, if you like, around supporting Nexus is far less than it would be around supporting some of the other MGAs that have grown differently. And the proof is in the puddings. We've never, ever had a notice of cancellation on an underwriting agreement. We've renewed everything we've ever wanted to renew. So that means there's less volatility around supporting and backing Nexus from a capacity perspective. So to answer your question, if we if we did take a degree of risk, does that mean we dip in and dip out? I don't think so, because there is that maturity, there is that longevity, and there is predictability around where our results are and where they're going, which is quite different to hiring a casualty team and then having to wait five, six, seven, eight years to, to understand where that book is going to develop. You know, we're buying businesses that Some of them have 20-year track records. We know absolutely where they are in the pricing cycle and where they are in a maturity perspective. You know, so that gives us much more confidence to back them with buying them, but also with perhaps our balance sheet as well. Do you give your paper providers a bit more comfort by saying you'll never take more than 20% of a single line, for example? Yeah, that would be the typical norm. Of the $600 million we'll write, if if we could support that perhaps by reinsuring $100 million of that, then that would be the sort of figure we'd be hoping to conclude. Would that also change your investor base? Because, of course, there's one lot of investors who love intermediaries in general, and quite rightly so, that they almost these days paying high multiples for intermediary businesses because they almost see them as that fantastic repeat income, annuity income, almost some of the private equity guys describe it, which is very bullish of them. I think they're braver than I am. 
particularly the sort of multiples they're paying today. But then getting in capital investors, pure risk capital investors, it mixes your metaphor in some way. It mixes means you're going to have two different tribes of investors. Yeah, that is probably right, Mark. At the moment, we're actually a very simple, straightforward business from a shareholder perspective. We have one VC stroke PE that sits within the business. That's BP Marsh PLC. Their model historically has been, as you suggest, to support essentially intermediaries and not to support risk takers or balance sheets. I think there would probably be some flexibility from their perspective if we were to pursue taking some risk. I don't think that would be a precursor to them exiting Nexus, for instance. But you're right, you know, if we had to go and raise sufficient capital to support underwriting, say, $100 million of our own business, that will require a capital raise, that will require bringing in new institutional investors, and that they will have a very different appetite to investors who do like the intermediary space. So we'd have to obviously think very carefully around the corporate structure and just how we would structure that risk-taking entity. And it probably would mean a reorganization, and it would probably mean an investor base specifically for that risk-bearing entity. I suppose, is this good for your own kind of corporate culture that you can reward your underwriters with some of the actual genuine underwriting profits that are your profits? Absolutely. And if you go back to what what our model is, which has been to acquire ready-made MGAs, those MGAs have been started and built by entrepreneurs. So, you know, they're very tuned into the underwriting results and they're very tuned into what's in it for me. Yes, absolutely. So the model going forward would have to lean into that and to ensure that there is alignment between underwriting profit and also reward for the underwriters. You mentioned about, obviously, M&A being a big opportunity for you. Is your M&A always about adding a new string to your bow, a new class with something really mature, someone who really knows that class who you could identify as a leader in that class, a particular niche or something? Or do you think, particularly given the way the market is at the moment, is there ever a chance for genuine kind of consolidation by something that actually looks quite similar to Nexus and does all the same lines that you do? Or is it always about finding new diversification? Yeah, that's a good question. It has certainly been where there are new product lines, new territories, and we can move into those spaces. That has very much been at the forefront of our thinking, and that will continue. So for us, that is business as usual. And we will continue buying three of those sort of MGAs every year for the foreseeable future, sort of baked into the business model, if you like. Would we consider deals larger than the traditional monoline MGA? Absolutely. You know, at the moment, we've got three potential acquisitions on our desks, which if we concluded all three, that would be another four to $500 million of premium. Those ones we're looking at are not the same size of Nexus, but they're certainly much bigger than what we've looked at historically. Would we consider doing something with a business that's of a similar size to Nexus? Well, there's, there's only really two of those outside of the US, and that's CFC and Jewel. And I'm not sure if I see a fit there. But there are MGAs of similar sizes and bigger than Nexus in the US. Would we consider a tie-up? Possibly. I guess we're problem solvers, we're tunistic, we're entrepreneurial. So, you know, we'd never say never. But I think we've got enough on our desks to, to keep us going for a very long period of time. So, you know, whilst that continues, there's no need for us to do anything that you know, potentially means that Nexus doesn't exist anymore, for instance. You know, that wouldn't be particularly logical. But I think, you know, the answer to your question is we'll continue in the same vein as before buying these monolines and these access points to new territories and new products. Will we look at bigger deals than that? Yes, we will. And we are. I can't really see us at the moment looking at transactions with a business the same sort of size of Nexus. I quite enjoy my job and I don't really want to be uh, having just spent a year in a garden. I don't really want to spend 
the foreseeable future sitting at home out of a job. So it leads me on to a question about what are your long-term strategic ambitions. The last data name that I saw was at around 500 million GWP. So but that sounds like you're going to hit that at the end of this time next year. About right? I don't want to say we're going to hit a billion dollars this time next year because... It was a billion dollars. I had 500 million pounds sterling. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. Though. We, we have said once we hit a billion dollars, we'll, we will have a strategic review. What I've previously said is our expectation is to try and hit that within three years. So that three years, this will be year one in 2021. So three years from now, essentially. I suspect we'll probably get there a bit quicker, particularly if some of the, this larger M&A falls into place in the way that we hope. You know, why did we say we'll have a strategic review when we hit three years? We said that because what we've always done is, is plan for what we can see. I can sit here and develop a thesis to say Nexus could be 2 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion, but it's just an idea on a piece of paper. It doesn't mean anything unless you can actually see it and, and feel it and smell it. So we've always planned for what we can actually see. And that, to some extent, is the glass ceiling. So when we were thinking, where are we going to take this business? And that was you know, probably this time last year, I guess, when we started talking about a billion dollars. A billion dollars actually felt like quite a stretch. It did feel like a bit of a ceiling. But I think, you know, fast forward and now into that phase of the three-year planning, a billion dollars doesn't actually seem like a huge stretch. So I suspect what will happen is we'll get to the billion dollars. The strategic review may well be, well, let's try and get to $2 billion. But, you know, we said let's have a review at a billion dollars because we were really just trying to work out, you know, what does it therefore mean once we get to that point in terms of should we be considering a trade sale? Should we be considering turning ourselves into a risk-bearing entity? Or should we be considering actually just pushing on and continuing with the business model? That's really what we were pointing towards when we set a strategic review in three years or a billion dollars. And as I said, I suspect we'll probably get there much quicker. It will probably mean we push on and try and get to the next level of our development. So, you know, it's always interesting. I was looking back on some notes when we had our five-year anniversary, which would have been in 2013. At that point in time, we were less than $100 million. And I was speaking about us being $250 million. And I remember at the time just thinking, I'm not actually sure if I know how we're going to get to $250 million because it seems such an eye-watering figure. But of course, we got to that place and we've had another review at that point in time and then we've grown and developed and pushed on. And here we are looking at a business which is $600 million this year with a view to a billion dollars in the near future. So I've always said to my board, let's plan for what we can see. I don't see much point in trying to plan for hypotheticals beyond that. And this market is such a fast moving marketplace that I don't think it'd be very prudent to plan beyond that. So that's where we are on that one. What about you personally? It sounds like you're quite open-minded about this, that you, know, you said earlier that you didn't want to necessarily do yourself out of a job, but it sounds like you're reasonably open-minded. Or do you have sort of nexus running through your veins and you would love to see that and it's sort of thing you hand on to your children and grandchildren? Yeah, that's a good question. I doubt if I could actually work for anybody else. I think I'm, I'm probably typecast in terms of having started this and built it and run it for 13 years now. I can't see myself working for anybody else. I think I'd just be probably too difficult and too awkward to deal with. But I've always said to my board and the people, the backers, you know, I'll be here for as long as you want me to be here, for as long as I'm building value, for as long as I'm doing what I should be doing in terms of running this business, then I'll continue doing that. So I'm sure there will come a point in time when I get a tap on the shoulder and people will say I'm not creating value or adding value. And at that point in time, you know, that'd be the time to move on and do something else. But that's some way off, I would suggest. And I enjoy it. You know, I work with great people. I've got some 
fantastic colleagues who are dear friends as well. Every day is different. We enjoy problem solving. We enjoy the challenge of building and growing and hitting ourselves against the insurance market, if you like. So, you know, for as long as those attributes remain, then I'm very happy to have this as 100% of my attention and devotion. So I can't really see life without Nexus, but I'm sure it will happen one day. Slightly changing the subject, but actually taking on that idea of people who've taken on the insurance industry and have won, obviously covering the insurtech phenomenon of the last five to six years, we've now got to a stage of maturity there where we've had some blockbuster IPOs. In fact, one's coming thick and fast now in the US. What do you think MGAs and businesses like yours can learn from that insurtech phenomenon and also the way that they've been received in the public markets? I'm slightly cautious around some of the valuations that you do see. So I personally think it's quite illogical that at the moment the NASDAQ is trading at twice the level it was before COVID started. That doesn't seem very logical to me. So I am slightly fearful there could be a bubble that's going to burst there, somewhat similar to what happened with the dot-com boom back in 2000 and 2001. So I don't get too carried away around you know this tech boom. Clearly, there are from a business model perspective and a business practice perspective, there's a huge amount we can learn from technological advances. And I could quite easily argue that Nexus is a insure tech in terms of how we trade and how we distribute. So much of it is done via technological means. So I think there are some really important lessons for us to learn there in terms of sort of looking towards what's happened in the capital markets and that tech boom and the IPOs I'm not getting carried away by that. I wouldn't personally invest in the NASDAQ at the moment. I just think that's going to burst at any moment. I think all of the quantitative easing that's happened over the last year has probably driven a fair degree of the price increases that we've seen. There will be a fairly serious adjustment at some point in the near future. Still talking tech, closer to home, we've had in Lloyd's some quite exciting algorithmic underwriting ventures emerging, and I know there's plenty more in the pipeline do you think MGAs are going to be there to take up this kind of opportunity? Is it something you're interested in doing? I think for some classes, you can certainly see a space for that model. You know, from a Nexus perspective, in terms of the class of the business we're in, all of what we do is specialty business. There are very high barriers to entry for, for most of our product lines. So it's, it's difficult to see how that could translate into the Nexus world. But I think, you know, the MGA world, in a more broader sense, is very good at innovating. It's often said that MGAs are the heartbeat of insurance underwriting innovation. So it's entirely logical that MGAs, certainly for the more sort of retail-based products and personal lines type products, that that model would lend itself very well to the MGA structure. So I would expect that uh, MGAs will lead the charge on that front. Because what your business is to sort of high hazard, high limits, low volume to get the kind of consistent data you need to let an algorithm loose on it. I think so. I think so at the moment, yeah. I want to talk to you a bit about the kind of underwriting culture, obviously, particularly also because you've you've bought so many different businesses over the years as well. How do you get that underwriting culture really coming through? Obviously, you know, Edis Hart and MGA is a really good underwriter and a better underwriter than the paper provider could provide themselves. So what do you see as the best qualities and attributes of the best underwriters? And how do you engender and really foster those within Nexus? That's a really good question. I think the key attributes for a successful underwriter, I would say, are problem solving. I think it's very easy for underwriters to say no, but trying to be creative around 
problems and finding solutions for your brokers, I think it has to be a key attribute. Loyalty. So it's very easy as, as an underwriter, particularly in the London market, to do a few years here and a few years there and to never really sort of be truly accountable for your results, which goes back to why we've traditionally bought businesses where it's essentially the manager, the owner, the entrepreneur that's built that business and he still sits within that business. I do think loyalty is an attribute or a quality which is often forgotten about quite a bit in our marketplace. Marketing, I think you've got to be a very good marketeer to be a successful underwriter. I think product awareness. Unfortunately, what's happened in the soft market is the knowledge around product has slid to quite a significant extent. You know, when I sort of grew up as an underwriter, learning the product you're selling and everything about that product, and also the product of all your competitors. So you can actually point out to your brokers the differences and why the broker should go with you, with your product. You know, that was something that was very much instilled into me at a very early age. But those things haven't really continued over certainly over the last decade or so because the market has softened and, and typically it's broker forms which are the primary product that is being sold. So I think product awareness and understanding your product and actually being able to, in many instances, create a product for your broker in particular bespoke situations is a key attribute. You know, so they're the things that, that typically we look for. And I think we're very lucky with the, the people we have within Nexus, almost to a man. We have underwriters and, and leaders that instill those qualities and have those qualities. Before we sign off, a bit of a slightly softer question, Colin. I want to ask you, who had most inspired you in your own career and why you would say that? So I suppose the people that I guess have inspired me and the people that I've looked up to, there's a few. So one would be John Sharman. I worked for John just after he started Axis. So I worked for John for five years. So, you know, John, serial entrepreneur, hugely successful businessman 15 years ago plus, and obviously I was much younger. But, you know, he was someone I looked up to and his success, I think, you know, I looked at that and everything he achieved was, was eye-watering and the way he conducted himself and the loyalty that John had was very inspiring and actually was probably the instigator behind, you know, us moving on and, and starting Nexus. It was in a very, very small way, of course. That was probably the prompt for us to start Nexus, looking at the success that John has had and the number of times that he's started businesses and sold them and, and innovated and been a very successful entrepreneur. So I think, you know, John is certainly one. I think other people who have influenced and inspired me, it sounds slightly childish, but I'll say it anyway, it would probably be the non-execs that I have sitting on the board of Nexus. What's been really important to me whilst we've been building Nexus and growing Nexus is having essentially having people that are smarter than me around me. I'm very conscious when I walk into my boardroom, I'm probably the least intelligent person in that boardroom. So, you know, I've got people such as Andrew Moss, Andrew Ran Aviva, Ian Wistendale, he was my original seed investor. He's built many insurance brokers and sold them. Hugh Morland, Hugh ran Marsh Vimpro, he ran Marsh UK, he ran CNA Europe, and Jeremy Adams, who ran Novi Syndicate. So, you know, these are guys that have built businesses, run businesses far bigger than Nexus. Some of them were PLCs. And these are seriously bright people that have guided me and the business through difficult times. Every business has difficult times. But, you know, in terms of trust and loyalty, absolutely trust all of those guys and value their judgment and opinion. And I think it's, you know, just for businesses in general, I think it's really important to have really high quality non-execs on your board. And it's so easy to forget about the non-execs, but they're almost like a first line of defense, if you like, for basically you screwing up as a businessman. You know, they are the people that will sense check you. They are the people that will bring you back to some kind of reality or normality. Their influence on our business has been huge. 
And I know for a fact we, we certainly would not be where we are today if it wasn't for those guys who have been there essentially since the start. Sounds like an open invitation to John Charman to become a non-exec whenever he wants to stop being an exec. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Great. Okay, thank you so much, Colin. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. Really, I really thank you for your openness. It's been, you know, letting us into really lifting up the brain and letting us have a look inside and we can get a good flavor of where Nexus is headed. Good luck with everything, not least, you know, eating your own cooking on your own balance sheet as well. And do come in and check in with us, whether after or before you've got to your billion dollar point as well, Colin. I'd really be the first to congratulate you if and when you do that. So thanks very much for giving us the time. Good luck with everything and come see us soon. Thank you, Mark. Take care. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Voice of Insurance dot com.